This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today, we are talking about using research and education. Specifically, I'll address theories, hypotheses, and paradigms. Oh, my. So why should educators be concerned about educational research? What relevance does it have to our everyday practice? We've all heard the common litany, oh, it's just a bunch of theory, or you can make research say anything you want, or ivory tower researchers don't know what it's like in the trenches. It doesn't work that way in the real world. I sigh, so let me address some of these. First, theories and hypothesis. Hypothesis. Educational research is used to create the theories upon which we design educational policies and practices. Theories help to organize relevant empirical facts. Empirical means they can be observed or measured. We do this to create a context for understanding phenomena. Theories help us understand phenomena. Sometimes, People try to dismiss an idea or practice with which they do not agree by saying, oh, it's just a bunch of theory. Meaning, I guess, that the theoretical realm is somehow far removed from the practical realm. Perhaps even having, having a different set of laws that govern it. But this would be a misunderstanding of what a theory is. A theory is a way to explain a set of facts. Put another way, if reality were a dot-to-dot -dot picture, a theory would be a way to connect a set of data dots. However, varying theories connect different data dots in different ways, resulting in a wide variety of pictures and practices. Thus, varying theoretical perspectives, while based on a set of empirical data, can often advocate different practices or practical notions. For an example, behavior learning theory and cognitive theory, both of which are based on solid empirical data, result in different types of practices. Now, theories are not meant to be eternal entities. They're designed to exist only as long as they continue to explain facts or connect the relevant data dots. When an abundance of new data are shown to conflict with established theories, they're discontinued or the theory is restructured. Some theories would be constructivist learning theory, cognitive dissonance, drive reduction theory, behavioral learning theory, we've already uh, mentioned, information processing theory, Levels of processing theory, social learning theory, situation learning theory, these are all theories based on a set of empirical data, set of facts, used to explain a set of facts and understand phenomena. Now, a theory is often confused with a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an untested conjecture. A hypothesis is the first part of a study or experiment. Here, the researcher says things like, I think that blank, or what will happen to X when Y is present? 
or I wonder about blank. This thinking is then put in the form of a research question or questions. In a formal quantitative experiment, this becomes the basis of a null hypothesis, which is then either supported or rejected by data collected during the experiment. In a qualitative or descriptive study, data are collected to answer or explore the question. Finally, theories can often be used to justify a practice or procedure for which there may not be direct research-based evidence. For example, in one of my undergraduate classes, students are taught how to use creative dramatics to enhance learning, and not just in the language arts, but in science and social studies as well. One day, a student asked me if there was any research to show that using creative dramatics in a science classroom did indeed increase learning. Now, I don't know if any studies have been conducted specifically to examine the impact of creative dramatics and learning in science. However, the levels of processing theory states that when information is manipulated or processed at deeper levels, we're better able to understand, remember, and retrieve it. Constructivist learning theory tells us that creativity, higher order thinking, and social interaction all enhance learning. Holistic learning suggests that when students are able to make personal connections with what they're learning, they learn more and learn more deeply. Deeper levels of processing, creativity, higher order thinking, social interactions, personal connections, these are all components of creative dramatics. Therefore, I could tell my students with a fair amount of confidence that yes, indeed, creative dramatics can be used to enhance learning in science. So, let's take a look at paradigms. A paradigm is a shared worldview based upon one or more theories. It includes a set of beliefs or assumptions that establish the boundaries and principles within a field. It guides perceptions and it also describes a particular view of reality. Paradigms are useful in providing a form of cognitive scaffolding to guide understanding or new learning. However, if they become too rigid, they present more growth than they promote. In other words, if we automatically discount all data or events that fall outside one's particular paradigm, we become parochial in our thinking and locked into old ways of doing things. Progress and innovation become stymied. An example of this paradigm-induced rigid rigidity can be found in education, where a positivistic paradigm predominates. From this view, the only things that are valued are those things that can be observed, weighed, or measured. Logic and knowledge reign supreme, while emotion, intuition, and creativity are ignored, demeaned, or dismissed. Yet these last three qualities have been instrumental 
and all the great human innovations and breakthroughs in science, the arts, humanities, and other areas. Thus, it would seem logical that an education system seek to fully develop the potential of all its students in order to create a better society. Yet a paradigm gets in the way. So let's look at better decision makers. The big point is this. Educational research is a key factor in enabling school administrators, principals, teachers, and parents to make sound decisions. Teachers and schools have tremendous impact on students' learning and achievement. Now, this impact is more likely to be positive if the decisions related to policy, curriculum, and teaching practices are made based solely on a body of research, based on what a body of research has determined to be best practice. Unfortunately, this is not always the case. Now, I'm going to describe some general approaches that are often used to make decisions in education. The first one is personal experience or anecdotal evidence. Decisions, educational decisions, are sometimes made on these. You may have tried a strategy or approach or, a or had a particular experience, and this becomes the basis of all future decisions. <clears throat> For example, Oh, I tried cooperative learning once and it didn't work, so therefore it's bad. This is called anecdotal evidence. And while it's very powerful because of the personal connection, it's not a very sound approach to use in making decisions. The second is called one or two studies. Here, an educator starts out with a personal opinion or preconceived idea, then locates one or two studies to support this view and says, research says that. This is also not a very sound decision or approach because of the possibility of selecting studies that are limited, flawed, or biased. This is similar to a pseudoscience approach. Now, can you make research say anything you want? Nope. Not if you look at the broad spectrum of research. But it's very likely you can find one or two incomplete or poorly designed or outlier studies to support any particular point of view. This is likely to happen if a study has not been peer-reviewed. Indeed, science is not science without the review of one's finding by a group of one's peers. For this reason, one should always be skeptical of, quote, scientific studies, unquote, presented by companies or corporations that are intent on selling a product or political organizations or any group that has an agenda. That's the one or two studies approach to decision making. The famous person approach. This is when decisions are made based on the statements of a well-known person. The statements of politicians, newspaper columnists, TV commentators, famous scientists, world leaders, or even podcasters are all of interest in general statements, but should not be used as the sole basis for making educational decisions. And all things you must say, show me the data. 
The fourth one is tradition and folklore. Here a decision is made or particular practice is continued because we've always done it this way. A case in point is the weekly spelling test that's given in many, if not in most, elementary schools every Friday. From Monday to Thursday, students study a list of words in isolation, outside any meaningful context, that are selected by the textbook company. On Friday, they're asked to recall the exact spelling of these words. This process is supposed to improve students' ability to spell. Yet, there's no research evidence to show that doing this improves students' ability to spell under real-life writing conditions. While this idea seems to make sense, there's no research to support this over other methods used to develop student spelling. And why is it done? Because we've always done it this way. Likewise, the common saying that a teacher should not smile until Christmas or that student behavior problems can be solved by getting tough are both bits of folklore that are often repeated as truth. They're based on the assumption that an effective teacher has a stern demeanor and is able to control students. Control and manipulation are viewed over relationship and shared goals, synergy, community building, and cooperation. But if simply being stern and getting tough had any research to suggest that they actually worked, we'd certainly be writing about these in our books and journal articles. We'd also be teaching getting tough techniques to our students in all our teacher preparation courses. But they generally don't work. As behavioral learning theory describes, simply getting tough is not very effective in changing behavior. Whether one's dealing with mice in a Skinner box or human beings in a second grade classroom, the mouse or student simply avoids, learns to avoid the punishment or aversive conditioners. And when the punishment disappears, the behavior reappears. The fifth approach to making decisions is the magic bullets and flashy new package approach. This is when pedagogical decisions in schools and classrooms are made based on the claims of for-profit manufacturers of educational materials. Do not believe what's written on the outside of the package, even if they use the word research. Again, research is not research without peer review. Even though commercial programs may claim to have the ultimate answer for teaching a particular skill or subject, there are no magic bullets in education. There isn't one miraculous cure or single best method, best method for teaching anything, including reading. Instead, there are many research-based strategies and pedagogical techniques, all of which should be intelligently adopted and adapted to meet the needs of particular teachers and learners in particular situations. The sixth approach is research-based theory and, and a synthesis of peer-reviewed studies. This is the sixth approach to making educational decisions, and it is the optimal decision-making process. 
Here, schools and teachers look at a body of research or make decisions that are solidly supported by research-based theory. This reinforces the need to have well-educated teachers, principals, and administrators with a substantial body of knowledge related to teaching and learning. Indeed, experts in any field have and use more knowledge to solve problems and make decisions. This is why having that body of knowledge is so important for teachers and educators and administrators. Now, it is not possible to provide all the knowledge that teachers need in four semesters of any teacher preparation program. That's why it is so important to have some sort of plan for continued staff development for both teachers and administrators. We do not create finished teaching products. Administrators must continue to learn in order to make good decisions. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson.